Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. This is a Vault Studios production. This show contains adult subject matter and is meant for mature audiences only. I'm Brendan Keefe. This is The Officer's Wife, Chapter 4. Jessica Boynton wakes up in Atlanta Medical Center in May 2016 when she's brought out of a medically induced coma. Well, at the time, not knowing what happened, I was almost kind of too out of it to really even think about what happened other than I thought I was in the hospital because I had a baby and I didn't know where my baby was. Jessica's friend Megan, the neighbor who heard gunshots the night she was found in that locked closet, remembers seeing Jessica in that hospital room, her feisty, bubbly friend, now feeble and trying to remember how she got there. I, I wanted just to hug her neck and be like, thank God you're okay. But I knew she was so fragile. And just seeing her with no hair and all those bandages on her head, and it hurt me seeing her like that. It broke my heart. It's been just over three weeks since she was found in a locked closet of her apartment in Griffin, Georgia, with a life-threatening injury to her head. Her husband Matthew's service weapon was found at the scene, and two shots had been fired. At least one shot appears to have been fired toward the top of her head. Her husband Matthew believes she tried to commit suicide, but the Georgia Bureau of Investigation is still conducting interviews, and soon they'll interview Jessica perhaps the only person who knows for sure what actually happened that night and why. Even when they took her, when she came out of the coma, when they brought her out of the coma, they didn't know, you know, how, what kind of effects that she would have. Before she woke up, Jessica's grandmother, Martha, spent every day at her bedside and restless nights waking up to check on her. The trauma to Jessica's brain was significant, and when she finally wakes up, no one can say for sure what life will be like for the young mother. I cried a lot, because you, you just don't know. You don't know whether they're going to wake up or what kind of condition they're going to be in, and the doctors didn't know, so they couldn't, they couldn't ease my mind. The early days are tough. Jessica's alive, she's talking, but it's a slow, painful process. They had a they had a doctor come in, uh, a psychiatrist to come in, you know, and evaluate her because she came in, you know, as a suicide attempt. And he told her that she, she said, "How did I get here?" And uh, I told her then I said, "You came in the in the helicopter," and she no, I didn't. And she was looking, and I said, "Mm-hmm." And she said, "Grandmother, I did, did you come with me?" And I said, no, baby, I said, you didn't tell me you was coming. If you told me, I probably would have been there with you. But still, nothing was said, uh, you know, about, you know, did you hurt yourself or anything? The GBI talked to her the fourth week, the first week that she was awake. And nobody had mentioned it to her. And the two GBI agents came and, and went in with her. Today's date's May 10th, 2016. Time is approximately 10.30 a.m. Located at Atlanta Medical Center. 
room 373 East. GBI agent in charge Jared Coleman and assistant special agent Chris DeMarco enter Jessica's room. Jessica, my name's Jared. I'm with the GBI. This is Chris. Uh, obviously, we're, we're here to look into kind of what happened. They ask family members to leave the room. No, we're just going to have to talk to her by herself. We'll be right out here in the hall, okay? But they're both really nice, okay? And we're going to be right out here in the hallway. Jessica's left alone with the two GBI agents. They sit close so they can ask questions and hear her answer in a quiet voice. Basically, I mean, the, the reason we're up here is to talk to you about kind of what happened as far as well, I don't remember much. Jessica says she remembers finding out that Matthew was having an affair in the days before everything happened, seeing a revealing Snapchat from another woman on his phone. Why do you think that they were cheating? Did Matthew tell you that or is there something on the no, Snapchat? I, it was Snapchat. I saw a picture, actually. And what was the picture? It was a picture of her and her underwear. Carefully, cautiously, DeMarco and Coleman dig deeper. More questions about the hours before Jessica is found in the closet. You don't remember what happened in Walmart? You don't remember any conversations you had with Matt or anything like that? Mm -hmm. Okay, do you remember coming home at all? No. Okay. I know that we got in an argument, but that's, that's about all. Have, uh, have you ever handled uh, Matt's gun before? You've never I held it? Okay, so you've never touched his gun before? So to the best of your knowledge, there's no reason why if if we did testing on the gun, why your DNA would be on the gun? No. Okay. Do you remember anything about sending any text messages to Matt that night? I mean, I know I texted him, but about, about what? I don't remember. So you do remember? There was, you remember you sent something and you just don't remember what it was? Okay. Do you know how it was that you got shot? No. You just woke up here, right? Right. Okay. Let me ask you this. Have you ever had any type of thoughts about hurting yourself? They circle back to the night the shots were fired in the closet. Yeah, you say you don't remember exactly what happened that night. You can't remember anything at all that night? Nothing? Well, what do you think happened? Honestly, I have no idea. Do you think Matthew... Did something? It's possible, but I mean, it's very doubtful. Well, do you love Matthew? Of course. Do you think Matthew is even capable of doing this? I, I honestly, I don't know. Jessica seems surprisingly clear-headed. She does her best to answer each question one by one. The interview finally winds down. It's just after 11 a.m. on Monday, May 10th. They've met with Jessica for just over half an hour. Get better, get back on your feet, and get back to it, all right? We appreciate you talking to us, okay? Glad to see you pull through. You take care, all right? If you ask Jessica about all of this today, her answers are pretty similar to the one she gave the GBI back in April 2016. She doesn't remember much about that night, after a certain point. The absolute last thing I remember is we had gotten back from Walmart and I had a little dog in our apartment. You know, he was a little Yorkie, twerky, Chihuahua and Yorkie mix. His name was Bentley. And um, I was going to the closet to change my shoes 
because it had been raining outside and I had on like heeled booties and I didn't want to go outside in the rain in those. And so I was changing my shoes. But that's the absolute last thing I remember was I was about to go walk the dog because that's why the baby was in his crib. Because I'd asked Matthew, hey, can you watch the baby while I go walk the dog real quick? It's raining outside. I don't want to take a newborn baby. You know, he was like, well, he was like eight months old. But I was like, I don't want to take him out in the rain. You know, it'll take me five, ten minutes, if that, just to go walk the dog. No, I'm not gonna do that. Okay, then I'm gonna go put him in his crib and you can listen to him cry because I'm not taking him outside in the rain. And so that's what I did. And then I went to go change my shoes. And that's the absolute last thing I remember before waking up in the hospital. In other words, whatever happens next in the closet, those critical moments are gone, unlikely to come back after all this time. And to Jessica, maybe that's okay. A lot of people say, hey, you should try hypnosis. I've heard it really works. And honestly, I think that would be a waste of my time because I think deep down, I know exactly what happened. And that is for sure that I didn't do it. And I think that's all I need to know. When Jessica looks back and goes through everything that doesn't seem to fit, things that don't add up, and it's a long list, she mentions Matthew's sweep through the house after hearing gunshots and what he does next, or what he doesn't do. He doesn't check on anybody. He just literally walks in and walks out. He doesn't check on the children, and he says that he doesn't hear Tyler crying. But on body cam footage, Tyler is crying the whole time. Tyler was a breastfed baby, so he was all about mommy, mommy, mommy all the time. If I was not holding him, or if he was not eating, or if I was not holding him while he was sleeping, he was crying. That's just what he did. All the things that never made much sense to her about that night still don't make sense. The odd angle of the gunshot to the top of her head, the second shot fired after the first, certainly uncommon in a suicide attempt, the position of her head resting on a pillow, the lock on the inside of the closet door. But perhaps more than all of those details put together, the one detail that makes a suicide attempt seem, well, odd or even unlikely is Jessica's frame of mind leading up to that night. Wednesday and Thursday was probably best days of my life because I'd been looking for a job because I knew me and Matthew were gonna be getting a divorce. I wouldn't have him to be completely dependent on anymore. So I was looking for a job and I finally found one. Well, Wednesday, I went up to Thomaston with my grandmother to fill out an application for the job. Well, I went up there, filled it out, and when I got back home, it was around five o'clock that evening that they called me back and wanted me to come into for a job interview Thursday that afternoon, I believe. And so I went back up there for the job interview. Everything went good. They wanted me to come back Friday for orientation for the job. Well, and then on top of all that, I finally had the evidence that I needed that Matthew was cheating on me. And that's all I needed. And so I was on cloud nine. She's also had a lot of time to think about that text, the one that Matthew got shortly before racing home and hearing gunshots, the one about having suicide thoughts. 
I can't do this anymore. Take care of Tolan and Tyler. Please tell them that I love them every day. I have been suffering for a while now and no one has noticed. Here lately, I have not been able to recognize the person I see in the mirror. This is not the first time I have had suicide thoughts. I love you and the boys. <laughs> it still does not sound like me at all. And in my mind, I was thinking, like I'm correcting everything that is wrong with it. Compared to how I always text and write and everything, it's not my style at all. Like so many words are misused, um, little to no punctuation at all. And the biggest one at the end, it says um, something about I love you and the boys. I wouldn't have said I love you to him at the time. Perhaps the benefit of time and clarity doesn't evoke the desperation that someone might feel as they type out a suicide text, text written years earlier as her marriage was crumbling. But Jessica's adamant she didn't write that text. She wasn't suicidal. I never was sad, to be honest. You know, I was, I was ready to be done with him. You know, I was, I was ready. You know, I was like, I'll walk out the door right now to be, you know, done. But I wasn't sad, I wasn't depressed. You know, I had had that job um, interview and everything and the orientation for it. So I was on my way, you know, I, I was at the point where I was just done and wanted out. But back in that hospital room in 2016, Jessica is only beginning to put all of this together, to question what might have happened, to question what she can't remember. The days go by and Jessica gradually starts making steps, talking more, opening up about what she can recall. But for the most part, unable to recapture those vital last minutes in the closet, unable to put together the pieces of this puzzle. When I found out she didn't remember anything, I was mad. Not at her, of course, just mad at the situation. Megan blames herself for not going to check on Jessica that night. She believes her friend would have recovered faster, remembered more, if only she'd gone to her when she heard gunshots before midnight on April 14th, 2016. I got mad at my man, my fiance, for not letting me go over there. I had gotten mad at the whole situation that I couldn't just check on her, you know? At least do that instead of letting her lay in a closet on a blood-soaked pillow. Her family stays by her side. And finally, after weeks of lying motionless in a coma and now awake again, she sees her young boys. It's Mother's Day. We had checked with the... Uh, nurses and all to see if they could make arrangements so that she could see them for Mother's Day. The visit is brief, too brief for a young mother attached to her children and taking care of them. Because it was very, very traumatic for her because uh, she was still breastfeeding Tyler. And yet, you know, when this happened, you know, of course all that had to stop. And so she was going through a lot, so. And it might not have even occurred to Jessica yet or the family that she might not be able to take care of her children anymore, that they could be taken away. That comes later. For the moment, the focus is on getting Jessica stronger. Before June, she's released from Atlanta Medical Center, 
and goes home to her grandparents' house. And at that point, um, you know, I would use a belt to help walk her. Um, just so many things. I mean, she couldn't get in the shower, you know, by herself. It was just a, a lot of things. The GBI continues to investigate. On May 25th, Lieutenant Curtis Keyes, one of the officers not interviewed the night of the incident, sits down with the GBI. Today's date's May 25th, 2016. Time is approximately 6.40 p.m. Special Agent Jared Coleman, located at the Griffin Police Department, conducting an interview with Griffin Police Department Lieutenant Curtis Keyes. We'd received information that Matt had confided in you some of his marital issues. How did he come to talk to you? Matt, before he, he used to work down in Pike County. Me and him were pretty close. We used to work out together a lot. So, so me and him used to communicate all the time. Did he ever convey to you any type of uh, physical issues between them? He said wife, uh, yeah, he told me his wife, uh, like, grabbed him uh, and, like, pushed him up against the wall or something. And then he, I, I said, well, you need everything to happen, man. I said, look, you need, you need to go ahead and document everything because you know how law enforcement get with family violence and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a few Griffin Police Department reports that... that had the response over there. Yeah, and I think a couple of days before that incident, if I ain't mistaken, or maybe that day before, a couple of days before, Captain Daniel and a, another shift went over there dealing with him. Had he ever conveyed any desire to hurt his wife or anything like that? No, he did always tell me, man, he don't know why she don't want it, you know, like she didn't really want to be with him no more. But he never said nothing, anything about, you know, him trying to jump on, I don't, I don't just see that in him. Yeah. Because he always liked to be, he wanted to be the police man for years. Mm-hmm. And that what I'm saying. I, him doing some crazy stuff, I, don't, I don't, ain't no way in the world. Yeah. Okay. No, I don't I don't see him doing that. Okay, so you don't think that he would do anything to hurt her? He won't do anything to hurt nobody if it ain't, if it ain't dealing with, like, law enforcement and, and his capacity that he have to do it. Okay. In early June 2016, less than two months after the events of that night and before releasing a final report on the investigation, the GBI verbally clears Officer Matthew Boynton, according to Police Chief Mike Yates. And on June 6th, he returns to full duty with a weapon. He's given temporary custody of the boys. The court finds that Jessica may be a danger to her children. But it's around this time that Jessica's doctor at Atlanta Medical Center, Dr. Vernon Henderson, chief of trauma and critical care at the hospital, writes a revealing letter to the court, one that calls into question the idea that Jessica tried to shoot herself and calls into question the nature of Jessica's injury. The 30-year veteran trauma surgeon writes, The report we received from the paramedics was that she was the victim of a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. First of all, the wound that she suffered was toward the vertex of her skull on the right side of her head. This would imply that she shot herself with a gun pointed downward near the top of her skull. This would be a very unusual direction in which to point the gun at oneself with the intention of committing suicide. The second most striking observation made by me while assessing Jessica was that she was right-handed and shot herself with her right hand. Remarkably, neither of her hands had any evidence of any gunpowder stippling from gunpowder blowback, literally both of her hands were pristine and unmarked. Henderson's letter continues. To my knowledge, no further forensic investigation of her hands was conducted during the entire month that she spent in our hospital. 
Toward the end of his letter, Dr. Henderson concludes with the following. My purpose of dictating this narrative is to note my concerns regarding the initial designation of this as a self-inflicted shooting. Whatever investigation there was done into this event in no way reflected our observation in the emergency room, particularly of the very strange angle of injury and pristine condition of her hands upon arrival. GBI investigators eventually talked to Dr. Henderson on July 20th, over three months after the night of the shooting and over six weeks after Matthew Boynton is cleared to return to full duty. His remarks are left out of their investigative summary. We should point out that Jessica's neurosurgeon, Dr. King, said the following about her injury. The circumstances surrounding the wound were suspicious. But he goes on to say, the wound was still able to have been caused by a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Blunt force trauma, a gunshot wound, even Jessica's doctors don't seem to agree on their findings. But the investigation continues. The hours and minutes before and after shots were fired are scrutinized by the GBI, by Jessica, by her family and friends. The fight at Walmart, Matthew's call to Griffin police to get an incident report written up about whatever happened between him and his wife, Jessica's suicidal text to Matthew. And what about the dozens of other texts that night before and after Matthew gets the suicide text and then calls dispatch? Casual texts that Matthew sent to his new girlfriend, texts that hardly convey the intense drama unfolding around him. Griffin, Georgia Police Chief Mike Yates, Matthew's boss who called in the GBI to investigate, says those texts are not for him to try to understand. I don't reconcile it. I rely on the investigator that was conducting the investigation to determine what the relevance of that was. Is it something that you or I would do? Probably not. But we don't know what was going on in his mind at the time, nor what he actually thinks was taking place. You know, if she, and apparently um, his estranged spouse has a history of saying and doing things that are a little far out there. I'm sure he was concerned for his children. I'm sure he was concerned for his estranged spouse, whatever the relationship was. But I, I speculate that he probably didn't take it as seriously as someone might. That's in his mind and in the determination of the people that did the investigation. But Jessica's friend and neighbor, Megan Browning, a trained EMT and firefighter, can't get over all these details that don't seem to add up. Um, she's never handled a gun. Jessica had never been able to take that gun out of his holster of his duty belt. So how can you grab a standard-issued weapon from a police department out of its holster when you've never been able to get it out before? She's never handled a weapon in her life. Second of all, you've got two shots that are fired for a suicide. Megan comments on the fact that Jessica's hands were clean. There was no gunshot residue to be found on her. Megan's also struck by the odd fact that Jessica and Matthew's closet had a lock on the inside. All of the apartment complexes are built the same. The closet door does not lock at all. You'd have to take the bathroom lock and swap it with the closet. Another strange thing about that night has to do with Matthew Boynton's clothes. By his own admission, Matthew states he wore the same clothes throughout the night, 
In the hours leading up to finding Jessica in that closet, and in the hours after she's flown to Atlanta Medical Center. But in his videotaped interview with the GBI in the early morning hours after the shooting, he's seen wearing something different, what looks like a red sweatshirt. Matthew lied, especially about him changing his clothes. A lot of people caught on to that one. Because at Walmart, he was wearing a gray sweatshirt, and on the porch, he's wearing a red, and he says, oh, I didn't change. You clearly changed. What did you do with those clothing? As Megan says, she's not the only one to spot the change in clothing. But Griffin Police Chief Mike Yates seems nonplussed by this, the fact that Matthew's wearing something different when he's interviewed by GBI agents later that night. I mean, obviously he's got on a different jacket or a different coat, but whether he has the same clothes on under that or not, I couldn't tell you. Other than the jacket, you haven't showed me any evidence to show that he didn't have the same clothes on. You know, and we know that he had access to his vehicle in the parking lot. We know that uh, they had to switch car seats and all that kind of stuff around. Um, there should be an explanation for the pullover, but that doesn't mean any, there hasn't been anything showed to me that the clothes that he had on are not the same other than adding to with another pullover shirt. Yates seems comfortable explaining other details of that night. Details that others, especially Jessica and her family, have called into question. Like the fact that Matthew doesn't check on his kids after hearing gunshots. I really don't know because I can't put myself in that. You have to live it to be in that situation. And people do people do things that don't make sense when and, and under stress and under dynamic situations. So I, I can't, you know, I'm not going to armchair quarterback him, I don't know. The chief says it's not the first time he's seen someone fire two shots in an attempted suicide. I have seen it once before, but we did, this is not a suicide. In other words, Jessica, if she pulled the trigger, was unsuccessful in her attempt. Gates goes on to offer his thoughts on how that second shot might have been fired, a shot fired presumably after Jessica fires the first one toward the top of her head. Body mechanics and gravity can do things like that. And um, also she was uh, obviously semi-conscious after that. And I don't know how much movement or rolling around took place in the clot So who knows? Only person knows that is Jessica Boynton and apparently she can't remember it. And then there's Matthew's call to Lieutenant Keyes to report his fight with Jessica at the Walmart hours before she's found in the closet a call that resulted in Griffin police officer Adam Trammell coming to the Boynton's apartment and writing an incident report. I suspect highly that that was merely a means to document their relationship problems. And I don't think his intent, nor did he ever, did uh, Matthew Boynton express a desire to prosecute uh, Miss Boynton. So I think it was just a matter of record keeping. However, we learn that Trammell's report isn't actually written until hours later after Matthew comes home, after Jessica's taken to Atlanta Medical Center. And the report contains errors. At least three times, Trammell writes down, he was at the house an hour earlier than he was actually there. My opinion, and from what I recall, is that I think his time is an hour off in the report. I think he made a typo. He changed a, he put a two where he should have put a three. On August 30th, 2016, four and a half months after Jessica was found in the closet, 
GBI Special Agent in Charge Jared Coleman interviews Officer Adam Trammell for the first time since the incident. Remember, Trammell's the one who came out to the Boynton's apartment to write up an incident report about an argument, a report that Matthew requested. Trammell's interview is done over the phone. Just a quick question, and this doesn't really affect the investigation at all or anything like that, but obviously, you know, we're, we're talking for the first time um, with, with this whole thing. Did you, I, I'm just curious for, for myself, why, do you know why we didn't interview you that night? Were you not asked to come down to the police station that night? Yeah, honestly, I don't know. I was in there when they was getting interviewed. Um, they said they was probably going to ask everybody, but I was never asked to do anything, so I'm not sure. Okay. During the interview, Coleman asked Trammell what he can remember about the incident at Walmart, the one that prompted Matthew's call to his lieutenant and Trammell's visit to the couple's apartment. Lieutenant Keyes called me. I guess, um, told me to go out there. Um, I guess Matt called him. Uh, told him about him and Jessica at Walmart or something. And he wanted me to go out there and just uh, Matt wanted a report done. Um, so I was out there earlier in the night. And then the second time was when we got the the call about her, about the attempted suicide. Coleman also asked Trammell about the fact that there appears to be a timing issue in the report. In that report, uh, you wrote that, and, and I'm just going to read this to you, just since we're not in person. You wrote that Matthew also informed me about an incident that also occurred at Walmart on Thursday, April 14th, 2016, at approximately 23:20 hours. Um, that time is after this report, after you showed up on that scene. Was that a typo? Yeah, that must have been a typo because um, he said that the Walmart incident happened b before I even got out there and took the report. So that must be a typo. Coleman then asks about when the report was written up that night. When you went out there to make this report, um, after he gave you that information, I'm assuming you just, did you write everything down and then write the report later or did you just do it all from memory? Um, well, I pretty much did it from memory. Um, I, um, I knew Matt, so I got I knew his information. So I think I believe I wrote down Jessica's and her date of birth. Um, and I think I we normally get um, a person's name, date of birth, phone number, and address. So uh -huh. I believe I asked Matt all all the information on Jessica. Okay. And then um, I I pulled a case number on. I pulled a code four to be able to type the report and then I just typed the report up later that night after after everything occurred. Okay, trying to think about anything else I need to ask because I don't want to have to bother you anymore with this stuff, man. Yeah. When Coleman asks Trammell what he knows about Matthew's marriage to Jessica, he brings up yet another report, another call to police, the night before Jessica is found with apparent gunshot wounds. So I know officers went out there the previous night, I think, um, and that was actually, I think, I believe they was dispatched to that address. Okay. Do you know what that was about? I, I'm not, I didn't go out there for that one, so I'm not sure exactly what happened that night. The same day that Officer Trammell is interviewed by Agent Coleman, August 30th, Jessica's neighbors, Josh and Whitney, who didn't answer the door the night of the shooting, also get a visit from the GBI's Jared Coleman and Chris DeMarco. 
Hey, don't worry. My name is Jared Coleman. I'm a special agent with the Georgia Bureau of Investigations. Assistant special agent in charge, Crystal Marco. It turns out they also heard gunshots that night. Not when Matthew Boynton reported hearing shots, but earlier, before midnight, when Jessica's neighbor Megan and her fiance also heard shots. Uh, I can't remember if I looked up people because we heard a gunshot or if we heard that after. Josh tells the investigators he heard the couple arguing, going up and down the stairs outside their door, and then at some point heard gunfire. But you heard the gunshot at about 11? Is it about 11.30, right? Sometimes between 11 and 12. Well, I certainly appreciate it. Thank you guys for coming. They're the second pair of neighbors that heard gunshots before Matthew reported hearing them as he ran toward the apartment. Not minutes before, but over an hour before he called into dispatch. But Griffin Police Chief Mike Yates is untroubled by the conflicting reports. I think in, in generalities, when it comes to uh, traumatic events and complicated investigations and witness testimony, uh, especially people that are interviewed sometime after this incident, it's not uncommon for misconceptions of time. Um, people want to uh, create, they want to make sense out of traumatic things that happen and they will embellish and add and leave things out. I think that's common in an investigation, but the only person that can answer those questions for you are the people that were interviewed or the GBI agents conducting the investigations. In the end, after reviewing all the evidence, the GBI concludes that Jessica Boynton's injury that left her in a coma was a suicide attempt. Matthew Boynton, already verbally cleared and back on the job, is finally cleared of all wrongdoing. Megan Browning thinks it was a foregone conclusion. It's a suicide. We're treating this as a suicide. It's over. The only two people that really know the truth is Matthew and, and Jessica. And so far, Jessica hasn't been able to recall what happened. She can recall up to a certain point, but then she can't. She can't remember. And honestly, if she were to... You know, today or tomorrow, say, I remember, but, you know, it'd be a problem with that because they'd say, well, you've just been hearing things. If I, if I really had to come up with, with something, I, th I think she had a blunt force trauma. I think that they, both of them have said they were arguing. He said she, they were arguing. She said that she remembers him arguing. And I think she got hit with something. The, even the doctor said, you know, that it, it looked more like a blunt force trauma than being shot. And if she had, if she had done it herself, uh, you know, you shoot yourself, you plan to shoot yourself, and you shoot yourself, and you, and you lay down on a pillow, and there's no blood anywhere else except on that pillow. It's, it's just, it's just so many. So many unanswered questions, and I don't—I don't know that we'll ever, ever get them, because I don't—I don't believe that Matthew will ever tell the truth. And I wrote letters to—I sent them to the governor. I sent them to um, the GBI director. I sent them to the city managers. I sent them to the uh, DA's office. And I mean, I listed in my letter—I listed all the, all the questions, you know that 
if we could just get answers to some of the questions, uh, you know, why, and then all you hear back from everybody is, you know, that the GBI did a great investigation, a very thorough investigation. Jessica Boynton is left with the results of the investigation that she tried to kill herself. But despite her lack of memory about those critical last minutes in the closet before bullets were fired from her husband's service weapon, she's adamant she did not try to kill herself. Something else happened. I believe that whoever did it hit me over the head with something. And whatever that something was, it was only like two to three inches long because that's was the length of my initial wound before they had to do everything to it. So, you know, it, it lines up to about, you know, the, the length of the end of the butt of a gun. So he could have used his gun to hit me over the head with it. And then his gun, um, the model that it was had issues with going off when it was dropped or, you know, whatever. If you, you know, just throw it down, it was going to go off. So it's very possible that, you know, he hit me over the head with it or his finger could have been on the trigger and he accidentally pulled it and that's what made the bullet hole in the ceiling. Well, then after that, you know, I'm laying on the ground. Then he decided, well, crap, maybe that doesn't look quite right. Maybe I need to do another one down low. Just, I don't know why. I don't know what the, the thinking of that would be. That's what I think happened, is that I was hit over the head with something. And Megan Browning is more direct. She envisions a scenario where Jessica wasn't alone in that closet. Well, when you're trying to stage a suicide as a police officer, because you're an officer of the law, no one would ever think of you being the assailant when your beloved wife, who can't even get the gun out of your holster, who's never handled a weapon in her life, and you're going to put her in a closet, place the gun under her pillow, place her head on a pillow, and then you're gonna swap the door handles and make it look like she locked herself in there. As Jessica goes about pulling her life together and recovering from a life-threatening injury, Matthew Boynton continues patrolling the streets of Griffin, Georgia, absolved of any blame in the incident. But this story isn't over, and Matthew Boynton isn't out of the woods yet. Next time on The Officer's Wife. Facts can't be contrived. Facts are, by nature, factual. That was actually a self-inflicted gunshot wound that happened to her. Nothing else leads us to believe that anything else happened to her besides her pulling the trigger. You don't have to ruin somebody else's life just because you don't like that they're saying the truth. The Officer's Wife is a Vault Studios production in collaboration with WXIA 11 Alive in Atlanta. The Vault Studios team includes executive producers Will Johnson and Adam Ostro and investigative journalist Jessica Knoll. Audio production by Richard Humphreys at Tacoma Media in Silver Spring, Maryland. Visit our website at vaultstudios.com to learn more about our podcasts, including Bardstown and our weekly show, True Crime Chronicles. 
And you can find us on Facebook at Inside the Crime Vault if you'd like to talk about this case and learn about other stories we're covering. If you or someone you know is in crisis, there are options available to help you cope. You can call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline at any time to speak with someone and get support. For confidential support available 24-7 for everyone in the United States, call 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255.